Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. The COVID-19 pandemic may be receding in the United States, but a different kind of pandemic may still be spreading, a contagion of anti-scientific extremist ideology, often closely tied to extreme religious beliefs. As the U.S. has become more politically polarized, debate has grown over the proliferation of toxic ideas. Could those ideas be infectious and harmful in more than a simply metaphorical sense? And, And if so, what can we do to sustain mental health? And Andy Newman, Norman, I'm sorry, Andy Norman, director of the Humanism Initiative at Carnegie Mellon University, has studied how bad ideas can short circuit our thinking and corrupt our moral outlook and study the ways in which we can think more fruitfully. His new book, Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind, Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think is published by Harper Wave. And I'm very pleased that it brings Andy Norman to our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Leonard. It's nice to be here. Do reactions to COVID-19 and the pandemic illustrate any of the issues that you're addressing in this book? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, anti-vax views as exacerbated by the the COVID pandemic show a, a really interesting strain of what I call a mental immune disorder. So minds vary in their resistance to bad ideas and viral nonsense. And it's time we started asking the question why and studying the the question scientifically. So in the past, we've kind of just made our peace with the answer, oh, minds vary in their resistance based on whether or not they have critical thinking skills. Well, it turns out that's not a very good answer, but we get a much more complete and useful answer if we study the mind's resistance to bad ideas or its immunity to bad ideas um, scientifically and learn how mental immune systems actually work. Are conspiracy theories or disinformation like the claim that Donald Trump won the election or that there are many pedophiles in politics and show business viruses of the mind? Yeah. So in the book, I do argue this. Um, There are now more and more scholars who take such talk literally. Uh, I think when you first come across an idea like that, it strikes people as metaphorical. And perhaps it is or or is in the process of, of morphing from merely metaphorical to literal. But if you if you go down the list, if, if you think about the properties that a thing must have to be a parasite, bad ideas, especially the infectious ones, have all of them. So uh, parasites require a host. Bad ideas require a host. Parasites can infiltrate a mind and create copies of themselves. Uh, Bad ideas can infiltrate a mind and create copies of themselves. Uh, A parasite can induce its host to say, to sneeze and thereby spread copies of it to other bodies and bad ideas can induce behavior such as, I don't know, rumor mongering um, that help to spread those bad ideas to other minds. Um, And of course, in the same way that parasites can harm their hosts, bad ideas can harm their hosts. So it seems to me that uh, bad ideas, especially infectious ones, check all the boxes for actual literal parasites. And scientists are starting to take this uh, way of talking about the matter seriously and discovering 
not only can we get a much clearer understanding of why our world is subject to some really scary forms of viral nonsense, but also we get much better answers to the question, what do we do about it? Well, some of them are incredibly old. Uh, the uh, claims of, of Jewish conspiracies are, what, 1,500 years old or so, and yet we still have people claiming that George Soros is behind everything that goes wrong? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, bad ideas have been spreading virally or uh, you know, via, con via thought contagion literally for thousands and thousands of years. And uh, arguably, uh, you know, ancient Greece, Greek democracy was torn apart by mind viruses. And I, I think you can make a pretty good case that the Roman Empire fell in part because divisive ideologies spread through the Roman Empire. So um, this is not a new phenomenon. What's new is that we have the internet, which facilitates the, the rapid spread of questionable ideas um, and seems to distract people from the task of the deliberate evaluation of them, which is to say we're, our, our breakneck world prevents us from doing the kind of careful idea testing that we need to inoculate ourselves against these ideas. Should we be concerned that someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene um, has uh, been claiming, once claimed that Jewish missiles uh, cause serious damage. <laughs> it, it's it's so ludicrous, right? You you like she's to in Congress. I'm sorry. Say again. She's in Congress, I, I, and she's not I, alone yes. in Congress. And yes, I am. I am terrified by this fact as well. The 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 amount of political influence that kooky ideologies have gained in recent years uh, terrifies me, and it leads me to think that that we need to accelerate the development of this new science. I call it cognitive immunology, and we need to figure out fast how to apply its findings so that uh, unhinged thinking doesn't consume our nation and prevent us from addressing you know, climate change, among other things. When Richard Dawkins wrote about viruses of the mind about three decades ago, was he thinking along similar lines? He was particularly concerned with what he referred to as the virus of religion. Yes. Wouldn't and that apply yes. to only some kinds of religious thought? So it was certainly Dawkins's essay, Viruses of the Mind, that got me thinking about these things. Uh, Dawkins makes only a passing reference in that essay about mental resistance to bad ideas. And he actually talks about uh, the way in which a gullible child might accept the existence of the truth, the tooth fairy, as as an example of a of a mental immune system that's not terribly well developed. So we're born although, fairly gullible. Although we we feed into that by leaving some money under the kid's pillow or some <laughs> yes, candy I, under the kid's pillow. I, I agree, right? And I'm not sure it's a good idea to teach your kids that there is a tooth fairy or that there is Santa Claus. And and I'm guessing like you, Leonard, I also have real qualms that it's a good idea to raise your children within a doctrinaire form of religion. Well, we're not going to talk about me here, but yes, uh, 
but I, I am really interested in some of the things that you're talking about. Have, have findings in behavioral or brain sciences influence your thinking about how bad ideas can take hold or infectious ideas or mind parasites connected to the, the mental illnesses that are studied by psychologists? Yeah, I, I do think so. I, I mean, what's the line between the kind of thinking Marjorie Taylor Greene indulges in and mental illness? Uh, I, I'm not, if there is a line there, I think it's it can be. Uh, so I, I'm not a psychologist by training, and I'm not. So can we say that to... everyone who subscribes to the ideas of QAnon is mentally ill? Uh, I won't. So first of all, I'm not qualified to diagnose mental illness. I'm I'm not You're trained. You're a philosopher. I'm a philosopher by training, right? Um, but I do think that indulging the wrong kinds of ideas can induce a condition that is very hard to distinguish from many things commonly recognized as, as mental illness. And as the idea of, of mental immunity and cognitive contagion begins to spread, I think we're going to actually find that uh, if you don't develop resistance to the worst kinds of mind parasites, that yes, you can end up mentally ill as a result. Does the idea of an infectious idea suggest that uh, we don't have as much control over our minds as we think? Absolutely. In fact, that's one of the really important lessons to take away from this. We like to think that our minds are, that we have agency and that ideas don't. But if you study the way in which ideas propagate across the internet, and we've all see how memes can propagate across the internet. It's clear that memes, ideas, can take on a life of their own. And when they do that, um, the locus of agency in our relationship with ideas begins to shift because ideas can, in fact, infect minds. They can, in fact, uh, co-opt minds and hijack them. And when you start to look at these phenomena, especially through the lens of immunology and, and epidemiology, you start to realize that we have all the agency and ideas don't is a conceit that we can no longer sustain. Uh, in fact, uh, we need to get past the idea that ideas are mere inert content that we pour into the receptacle of the mind. This idea that the mind is just a container for ideas and information uh, does not begin to approximate the way our minds really work, and it's not serving us well. The notion of ideology is particularly important in your book. Isn't that term used widely in American politics and in academia? Do you mean something different from what you, it's usually meant? Yeah, so the term actually has two quite distinct uses. Some people use it as just a generic term for any worldview or any belief system. Uh, in fact, there's a pretty uh, significant strain in political science that treats any sort of set of political beliefs as an ideology. There's nothing inherently wrong with that way of talking about an ideology, but I think it's a missed opportunity because we have perfectly good uh we have other terms for that. Just the, the term worldview or belief system works perfectly well as a generic. Weltanschauung. Weltanschauung, good. Yeah, the German term, right. Um, I actually think we need a term that, me, that means um, objectively problematic system of beliefs. 
or objectively problematic system of ideas, because ideas do have causal properties that can impact human well-being, and it is possible to determine when they are objectively problematic. We need a term for that. I think ideology is the best term available. So I like to use the term to mean system of beliefs that we can demonstrate uh, is not serving us well. Now, I mentioned conspiracy theories, uh, originally talking about anti-Semitic ones, but there are lots of different conspiracy theories out there. Are, are the people who embrace them unified by some ideology? Well, I think, I think a conspiracy theory uh, lodges in the mind in a, in a way that's very similar to the way ideologies do. So ideologies and conspiracy theories both help to define identities. So when you become fully invested in an ideology, you start to identify with that ideology. You say, I am a conservative, or I am a liberal, or I am a communist, or I am a socialist. And when you begin to... Nobody says I am a fascist, even though there are people out there who are. I'm sorry, who says that? I don't hear too many people saying I am a fascist, even though there it seems to be uh, not uncommon. Yeah, I, I hear you. Um, that's right. I think that term has been tarred to the point, well, perhaps fortunately, to the point where nobody will will own it. Um, but but the what one thing we know from psychology is that there's a phenomenon called identity protective cognition, and basically, if you come to identify with a set of ideas or beliefs then any questioning of those ideas or beliefs triggers a kind of defensive response. In fact, I argue that that's actually uh, triggers the mind's immune system to overreact against the, the information that is perceived as a threat or the question that is perceived as a threat. And uh, often we reject those questions or information out of hand simply because they threaten our identity. So if you hitch your identity to controversial political or religious beliefs, you're essentially rendering your mind incapable of thinking in a fair-minded way about certain issues. And I don't think that's good for us individually, and I don't think it's good for us as a, uh, as a species to indulge that kind of, um, to indulge in identity, in belief-based identity formation. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM is Andy Norman, whose latest book is Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind, Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think, published by Harper Wave. Um, climate change denial or false claims about false claims about the 2020 election are particularly common among conservative extremists. Um, yeah. We're not hearing as many about people on the political center and the left these days, uh, but uh, should we assume that everyone is prone to infectious ideas of some kind? Uh, yes, we should. Uh, none of us is exempt from mind infections. And in fact, I would venture to say that each and every one of us harbors many false beliefs. And if you indulge the, my way of talking about this, that means each and every one of us harbors mind parasites. Uh, hmm. Whether, we, now, whether we're aware of them or not. Whether we're aware of them or not, that's right. And, and this, I think this way of understanding the phenomenon of false belief or uh, induces a kind of humility that can do us all 
a, a service. We, we know that the arrogant mind um, can't learn in the way that a humble mind can. And so if we give up this idea that, you know, our minds are, are the locuses of unfettered agency and recognize that our thinking can be skewed in, in really subtle ways by ideas, we, you have to become more humble and more careful about the way you embrace and wield ideas. Climate change wasn't really on the, uh, the public radar 30 to 40 years ago, so neither was denying it. Do, do the ideas that we consider infectious change over time, or are they all part of some kind of a general stream? Yeah, well, so I think uh, when Copernicus and Galileo together showed that the earth is in fact whirling around the sun rather than vice versa. Uh, the former idea, which that the, that the earth is stationary actually became at that point uh, a mind parasite, uh, something that was demonstrably you know, incorrect. So, so prior to the Copernican revolution, I think it might well have been reasonable for many people to believe in an Earth-centered solar system. But after uh, Galileo's especially uh, powerful demonstrations uh, of the Copernican system, it became unreasonable and thereby something of a mind infection to cling to the Earth-centered uh, picture of the universe. But they were attacked by religious people. And you mm -hmm. return to the idea of extremist religious thought several times in this book. So um, are some kinds of ideas more susceptible to infection than others? Absolutely. And in fact, I think that the idea that that faith-based believing is a virtue, uh, in fact, I demonstrate in the book that that idea, the idea that faith is a virtue, can actually compromise your mind's immune system. There's now very good empirical evidence coming out of a research team in Canada led by Gordon Pennycook that shows that if you, if you resolve to change your mind every time the evidence changes, if that resolve begins to weaken, you become more susceptible to all kinds of, of weird deformations of thought. So you're more likely to become a Trump supporter if, you, if your religious upbringing uh, compromises your resolve to change your beliefs in the face of evidence. You're more likely to become a conspiracy thinker. You're more likely to become a QAnon supporter. You're more likely to become a science denier. And of course, uh, even Christian evangelicals supported Trump uh, 81%, I believe, in the 2016 elections, and I think at an even higher rate in the 2020 elections. So it's no accident that fervent religious belief results in some crazy ideation. You can't indulge in wishful thinking in one area of your life and expect it not to spill over and affect uh, your politics and your ethics and, and your views about economics. And you're saying that blind faith fundamentally is at odds with uh, a healthy mental immune system. Th that's exactly right. Now, I will say this, that the term faith has 
is used in very different ways. And sometimes by faith, we simply mean something like, you know, resolute hopefulness or trust. And I, I'm a big fan of resolute hopefulness. I, th I think that's a good thing. And if that's all a religious person wants to protect with their use of the word faith, I, I'm okay with that. The problem becomes when we use the term to rationalize close-minded, tenacious believing, because that begins to not just compromise our mental immune systems, but begin to compromise relationships and our capacity to dialogue with one another. Social scientists and historians have argued that conservative white Christians feel that their sense of identity is under attack. Would that explain their susceptibility to some bad ideas? I, I think so. And, and in fact, I think religious demagogues have been fear-mongering about the threat to Christian identity for a long time, right? Think about the so-called war on Christmas, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, those liberals are, are trying to drive Christianity out of the public sphere. None of this is true, but uh, religious demagogues gain power and influence by scaring uh, the devout. And when they do that, they actually um, prime their followers' mental immune systems to overreact to, to information that, that, that shouldn't that shouldn't be making people feel defensive. And, and when so, we look at the when we look at the conflicts around the world, so many of them are by, between people of different religions. Yeah, I, well, and, and I think one of the real beauties of science is that you're not supposed to accept anything on arbitrary grounds. We, we, scientists are resolutely committed to, to believing things for non-arbitrary reasons. But once you accept that it's okay to embrace certain things on faith, you literally open the door to a thousand competing and essentially a, th a thousand competing worldviews, each of which is based on a more or less arbitrary commitment to God number God X or God Y, um, interpretation X or interpretation Y. So one of the really important things to come out of the philosophy of about believing and reasoning is, is that we actually need shared standards for non-arbitrary believing. <clears throat> and when we find such standards, and I try to articulate some of them in the book and apply them, uh, what we should do is try to do that and let the chips fall where they may. And some forms of religious faith will will end up being a casualty of that process. And some of uh, science, scientific ideas and, and common sense ideas are also gonna fall by the wayside. The Nobel Prize winning economist, Daniel Kahneman has, has argued that there are two modes of thought, a fast, instinctive, emotional one, and a second that's slower and more deliberative. Mm. Do your ideas about mental immunity involve similar distinction? I mean, I think it fits in pretty well with Kahneman's work on this. Kahneman, of course, is, is a real leader in this field. Um, I think that the kind of philosophical idea testing that philosophers have long gone in for is, is essentially an attempt to slow thinking down and to be deliberate instead of instinctive. <laughs> 
Um, in other words, philosophy is kind of the art of, so when Socrates would wander the streets of Athens and strike up conversations, a lot of times he'd just, he'd, he'd essentially say, wow, that idea that just flew by that in conversation, that was really interesting. Can we, can we examine it carefully together? And, you know, the people around him would all say, no, I'd say, sure, Socrates. And then Socrates would ask some questions about it. And he'd, he'd slow the thinking down to the point where everybody could get a shared understanding of what was being said. And that allowed them to engage in collaborative idea testing. Um, and that process is so essential to mental immunity. It's so essential to being able to correct for, for our uh, cognitive biases. And we need it in today's world like, uh, like anything. But aren't most bad ideas simply bad ideas? When does a bad idea become so bad that it becomes, can be considered a mental virus or uh, a, a parasite? Yeah, I, I guess uh, I'm happy at this point to say that all bad ideas, even the only mildly problematic ones, are mind viruses of a sort or mind parasites of a sort. I might be persuaded to reserve the term mind parasite for something, you know, more virulent. Um, I guess it, it may be implicit in the idea of mind parasite or mind virus that it's infectious in some way, and not all bad ideas are infectious. So, uh, Leonard, if I say, hey, reach into the in, into the bonfire there and, you know, grab mm -hmm. me one of those hot coals, um, <laughs> that's a bad idea, but it's very <laughs> unlikely to spread it, uh, virally. Have the, the social media accelerated the, the spread of toxic thinking? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that's a huge problem. In fact, I think that so, so we've built a world just in the last few decades where everybody who wants to can set up a slick looking website where they propagate disinformation, where they can propagate bad ideas to their heart's content. And many of these ideas are enormously seductive and spread like wildfire across the internet. And it's, it's creating social dislocation, um, mental illness, depression. It, it's tearing some cultures apart. It's actually caused genocides in certain parts sure. of the world. Um, right now, we, we have to do one of two things. We either need to shut down the internet or dramatically regulate social media. And I'm not sure that's a good idea. Or, and, and here's the real alternative, we need to ramp up our immunity to bad ideas fast so that we can nip this disinformation problem uh, at the demand end rather than at the supply end. Well, we can develop a natural immunity to diseases. Is that possible with viruses of the mind? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I think, uh, you know, just living our lives. So, so most of us, many of us go through a phase where we believe in Santa Claus and then, you know, we learn a little bit more about the world and we get, we become more skeptical. So that represents the development of a small bit of, of immunity to a falsehood. And, you know, as we outgrow the gullibility of youth, uh, each of each and every one of us develops some immunity. The problem is, even is that we all need a lot more of it. <laughs> that um, I would venture to say that our mental immune systems are functioning at a fraction of their full potential, 
And that until we really understand how mental immunity works and we figure out how to make our mental immune systems function better, um, basically viral foolishness is going to cause a great deal of harm, especially in an internet connected world. A biological disease could kill people and leave them permanently disabled. What are the long-term effects of, of infectious ideas of, uh, or, or parasites? Um, and haven't some of uh, the Trump supporters benefited in some sense from the, the bad ideas while they're harming others? Uh, actually, that's a wonderful question. Um, so many people who go deep down a conspiracy rabbit hole and start to share their convictions with family end up finding that they get alienated from their family. And many of them find that they lose their friends. They end up getting more and more isolated uh, in part because the people around them start to think of them as you know, kind of wacky. So I think that most of the people who buy into these kinds of ideas end up suffering as a result. But it's also true that some people gain from it. So think about the way in which Alex Jones, a major uh, peddler of conspiracy thinking, think about how much wealth he's, he's amassed by essentially hacking people's mental immune systems and, and taking advantage of their minds. So it's not that you can't benefit I mean, I'm sure many people developed a sense of purpose by buying into the Trump election line nonsense and showing up on January 6th to you know, overthrow the US government. And that sense of purpose is, can be enormously powerful and, and uh, you know, make you feel like you're part of something. I, I don't but, doubt for a minute that there are significant benefits that can come from, think, from buying into crazy ideas. The problem is that they also come with costs, and sometimes they come with costs to others that make that should make them unacceptable to us all. But the first step is that you have to listen to Alex Jones, and uh, for some people that seems reasonable. For I guess the great majority of Americans, that seems totally uh, uh, impossible. Yeah. So, so am I? Am I actually advocating that we? censor Alex Jones? I don't think so. But I, I don't know what to think about this. When, 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 when Russian disinformation agents set up on Facebook and begin to uh, and, and use their disinformation spreading tactics to sow division uh, in American communities, and, and, it, and it starts to look as though that's actually really harming. I mean, it, it's increasing polarization and partisanship in America. And America's future is very much in doubt. Do we allow that kind of information spreading, disinformation spreading to go on unchecked? Or do we actually need to regulate it in some way? I, I understand that talking about information regulation is practically taboo because there, everybody worries there's a slippery slope there from, from that to totalitarianism. Um, but just as it's possible to overregulate information and belief, it's also possible to underregulate information and belief. And, and that's better, a big quandary that the social media are facing right now. I have to take a, a, a bit of a break, and we'll come back to this. Uh, you're listening to Linda Topate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. 
Norman, who's uh, the book we're discussing is uh, Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind, Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. It has a, a forward by Steven Pinker, and it is published by Harper Wave. Uh, finish your thought, because I want to get into the whole matter of uh, whether we think of many ideologies as morally wrong and even reprehensible. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I'm curious about your ideas about mental immunity connected with morality. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just going to pick up on that and, and, and run with it. Uh, so there's a, there's a widespread conviction at, at large these days that basically says, who are any of us to say that one set of moral convictions is better than any others? Um, and we've been trained in, in our culture over the last, I don't know how many decades, to think that there's something illegitimate about actually thinking that some worldviews are, 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 do a better job of promoting human well-being than others. But it's just palpably, demonstrably true that not all worldviews are equally conducive to human well-being. In fact, some worldviews, which say white supremacy, uh, you know, white nationalism, Christian nationalism, some of these worldviews are demonstrably destructive of shared human well-being. And I think we can, that any honest inquiry, inquirer should find those views uh, objectively problematic. And we need to be able to talk frankly about these ideologies as bad, as, as ideologies that are maybe helping some at, at the expense of others, but that are not good for, for human uh, well-being. So I actually think morality is fundamentally a set of behavioral rules for promoting shared well-being. But it generally, it usually, usually derives from religious thought, the concept of morality, doesn't it? Or my concept of morality as opposed to the, the next person's concept of morality. Well, so I think most of us are taught to think, to believe that. But there's been a good bit of, of really interesting science on the evolution of the moral sentiments. So we now know that long before human beings became a distinct species, primates were already developing sensibilities that helped them cooperate in various ways. And these cooperative sensibilities are actually the real underpinnings of morality. And so when you pull away the religious beliefs that we often assume are foundational to morality, it turns out uh, you don't fall very far, or if you fall, sometimes you don't fall anywhere at all. In, in fact, often it frees you up to begin learning uh, and developing a more nuanced understanding of right and wrong. Um, so I would argue that religion has falsely claimed to be the foundation of morality for a very long time. Um, but in fact, morality is rooted in, in our biology, which is not to say that whatever we're inclined to do is right, but uh, we have many cooperative and instincts that form the backbone of morality. And we need to use the tools of, you know, we need to design a culture that helps to bring out the best in us and suppresses the worst of us. 
Can the spread of a mental virus be described or, or modeled scientifically in a way that epidemiologists analyze biological viruses? And going a bit further, in epidemiology, important distinctions are made between viruses, bacteria, parasites, other disease organisms. Are there similar distinctions among the ideas that can affect our mind? Yeah. So in the uh, Viruses of the Mind article you mentioned earlier in the show, uh, Richard Dawkins actually calls for the for a new science of information epidemiology. Um, and I think that discipline has basically shown that the same equations that describe the way you know, a virus can spread through a population can also describe the way in which misinformation or propaganda can spread through a population. So yes, information epidemiology is here. The germ theory of cognitive contagion is here. The World Health Organization just recently announced that infodemics are a real thing, which is to say epidemics of misinformation um, mm. are not just real, according to the World Health Organization. They're a major obstacle to public health when they spread, for example, you know, anti-vax ideas. You mentioned earlier the concept of cognitive immunology. Are you arguing that we need to develop a science of, of cognitive immunology? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So cognitive immunology is my word for the science of mental immunity. Uh, and although I'm founding this science in some sense, the research, the relevant research actually goes back almost 60 years. So, so back in the 1950s and the early 1960s, a psychologist named William McGuire um, wanted to understand how we can induce resistance to persuasion. And he did some experiments and found that if you expose a mind to a weakened form of an argument, um, the mind in question will often develop resistance to even stronger forms of the same argument. And you'll probably be struck here by the same thing that struck McGuire, which is that, wow, that sounds a whole heck of a lot like the way in which an inoculant um, mm -hmm. affects the body's immune system. And so McGuire actually called his theory uh, inoculation theory. And he went on to show that you can, in fact, inoculate minds against new information. Now, more recent work built on on top of his shows that you can also inoculate minds against disinformation, misinformation, and science denial. And that's, I think, a shining hope in these dark times. Is cognitive immunology more than just critical thinking or healthy skepticism? Um, I think so. So the concept of critical thinking has been around for about a hundred years. And it's been the centerpiece of higher education. I mean, if you ask most college professors, you know, what is your teaching in part that, that your students will actually remember long after they've gone on to other things, they'll all say critical thinking. So we've been actually trying to spread critical thinking for a very long time. And I think it's become obvious just in the last decade or two that it's not enough, that especially in an internet connected world, critical thinking skills just aren't going to be enough to prevent devastating outbreaks of, of, of toxic thinking. So one of the things you begin to see when you take the idea of mental immune systems seriously is that there's a whole lot more to mental immune health than was dreamt of in the critical thinking paradigm. So for example, um, 
If you impart critical thinking skills to an ambitious young college student, we like to think that's going to make them a good person and a good citizen. But a lot of times that student will actually go out into the world and actually weaponize those critical thinking skills on behalf of one or another ideology. I mean, look at Ted Cruz. The guy is what, Harvard educated? He's not dumb, but he's essentially an ideologue who weaponizes critical thinking skills for his religious and political, his own religious and political ends. And I think Ted Cruz is, a, is an example of, of how we're not solving the problem with the critical thinking instruction that we're providing young people today. Who would be the scientists of mental or cognitive immunology? Psychologists? Yeah. So, so I'll mention three or four that are doing some really interesting work uh, with involving mind inoculation. Uh, John Cook is just, just started at Monash University in Australia. S uh, Stefan Lewandowski, um, Sander van der Linden. I think they're, they're both uh, in the UK. Uh, so these are guys who actually experiment with ways to counteract, for example, climate denial. So what kind of information can you expose a test subject to that will make them less likely to believe that climate change is a hoax? And they've, their experiments actually show that you can, in fact, mitigate science denial and you can inoculate minds against uh, the kind of nonsense being peddled by, I don't know, you know, you know the oil interests about climate change. Well, I'm are scientists and engineers better immunized against harmful ideologies? I'm thinking about someone like William Happer, who's an emeritus professor of physics at Princeton, who's a leading denier of climate change. Uh, that's an interesting case. I would say that statistically, on the whole, a science education does impart some immunity. Um, so I don't have hard numbers on this, but I do think that, that this claim will be borne out. A good science education makes you less likely to buy into conspiracy theories or other forms of nonsense. Um, no, but, but of course, it's not perfect. Mental immune, immune, mental immune systems are complicated, and you can be an extremely good. What was it? Uh, who was the uh, African American Republican presidential candidate who was a brain surgeon, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm yep. suddenly yep. forgetting his name, but we, yeah, but he also was in the cabinet for the whole four years. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And, you know, he, he could be extremely, it's, it's easy to be extremely bright and talented and, and successful in one narrow domain, and yet still wildly susceptible to bad ideas in other parts of your life. My audio engineer is trying to give us a name. Richie, what were you saying? I was telling you, is Ben Carson. Ben Carson, thank you so much. There we go. That's helpful. Thank you. <laughs> now, um, Andy, you discussed the philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce and pragmatism. How does pragmatism fit into all of this? Yeah. Uh, so I'm a big fan of uh, the philosophical tradition uh, born in America about 140 years ago. Uh, Charles Sanders Peirce was the the founder of the pragmatist tradition. Uh, pragmatists have always thought, so pragmatism essentially argued that the evidence for our ideas aren't the only thing that matters in their assessment. So the, 
the consequences of our beliefs for our lives also matter. So, so think of a belief as a kind of a stone in the middle of a stream. Um, and upstream of the belief, there might be evidence for it. And once you buy into the belief, there are also downstream uh, consequences for the way you'll behave and the way you'll treat people and the way you'll, you'll live your life. So, so any given belief is, is related both to upstream evidence, which is the kind of thing scientists typically look for, and they're related to downstream behaviors, which are the kind of things uh, religions have often been concerned about. So many religions say, you know, believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you'll find peace. In other words, a certain belief will have psychological benefits for you. And the pragmatist basically said, hey, the downstream psychological benefits of our beliefs, they're relevant to an idea's assessment, just as the upstream evidence uh, is relevant to their assessment. So I argue in chapter six of the book that, that science has an important piece of the truth here and that the religions of the world have another piece of the truth. And that when we, when we acknowledge that beliefs have both upstream and downstream uh, implications that we actually become wiser versions of ourselves and better able to adjudicate the kind of disputes that arise between the religious and the more scientifically minded. I'm not sure that my dog is persuaded by this, but um, <laughs> the, the book we're mentioning is the book we're discussing is mental immunity, infectious ideas, mind parasites, and the search for a better way to think published by Harper Wave. And my guest is Andy Norman. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You write that a genuinely healthy mind is open to persuasion. Aren't mm. we all persuadable on some issues, but then <laughs> inflexible on others? Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. So are there, are there ideas or patterns of thinking that tend to inhibit our openness to persuasion? Yeah, well, I certainly think that becoming involved with a, a political or a religious tribe, that that can be deeply inhibitory of, of uh, the open exploration of certain kinds of ideas. Um, look, every, every human being, left or right, conservative, liberal, religious, non-religious, you know, they'll, they'll see a sign saying your exit is coming up on the highway and they'll take in that information and they'll change their mind and say, okay, I'll get in the right lane. And so I'm ready to take off. So we're, we, we're all receptive to information and willing to adjust to information to one or another degree. The problem is whether we're willing to do that about the things we cherish most. So, so the uh, Nobel prize winning economist, John Maynard Keynes actually said, um, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? <laughs> uh, incredibly smart guy, right? And a beautiful question. And with that simple aphorism, which I completely love, he was actually gesturing in the direction of the proper way to, to tend your mind's immune system and to become a lifelong learner. He was smart enough to have a whole... Uh, field of economics named after him, Keynesian economics. Exactly. Uh, we, 
We can usually tell when we're physically ill, but isn't one problem with a systemic bad idea that we don't recognize that we're infected? Don't we even invent stories about why it's others who have the problem? Yeah, I, I, I think that's very perceptive. Um, yeah, so the a lot of times we're, it, it's harder to see your own mind parasites than it is to see others. <laughs> Right, because our own uh, the, the the falsehoods that we've taken in and come to accept as true, or the destructive ideas that we've come in and assumed are are beneficial, they're the ones that actually uh, disguise themselves as uh, what's the opposite of a of a parasite, a, a symbiont, right? So just mm-hmm. as there are symbiotic gut bacteria that help our bodies thrive, there are symbiotic there are good ideas that are basically mind symbionts. And it's important to pack your mind with a lot of good ideas, but it's also, and, and that's the argument for the kind of additive learning that we tend to focus on. But it's also really important to unlaw, unload or offload all of the bad ideas that can creep in there. And that's the other side of learning that we tend to neglect. I call it subtractive learning. And uh, we need to come up with a conception of learning that is both additive, subtractive. And I also argue in the book, constructive, you need to take the information that remains in your mind and you need to organize it into a coherent, uh, into a coherent uh, unity. Otherwise it's just kind of a steaming pile of, of information. (laughs) We're pretty much uh, running out of time, but I I do want to know how we can avoid sounding like we're, asserting, I'm right, you're wrong. Uh, If we're going to argue that one set of values is better than another, do we risk sounding intolerant or or domineering? Another great question. I I know that there are many people who hear what I have to say on this, and they immediately assume that I I think I have all the answers and that that I'm setting myself as the, as the arbiter of, of which ideas are really good and which ideas aren't. Uh, no, I'm not claiming to be the arbiter of good ideas and bad ideas. My, my actual conviction on this, and this is the view I defend in the book, uh, well-conducted dialogue where voices, where different voices get to be heard and objections and questions get to be freely asked, that should be the ultimate arbiter of which ideas are good or which ideas are bad. Although we're hearing a lot of people complaining about cancel culture these days. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think cancel culture is a sign of of people weaponizing reasons to to, um, go after each other's characters rather than to critique their ideas. Philosophers have known for a long time that you can only have a constructive dialogue if you challenge each other's ideas without impugning each other's characters. We call the absence of that ad hominem argument. Mm-hmm. And cancel culture just seems to me a huge exercise in ad hominem argument. And from the perspective of anybody who studied philosophy, it's a huge mistake. Well, Right now, uh, conservatives are using the term more than uh, liberals who use it a little while earlier, I guess, when Trump was president. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Uh, what a great pleasure it's been talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show today. And a pleasure for me as well, Leonard. And uh, thank you for having me.
And Andy Norman's book is Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. It's published by Harper Wave. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview and, and also to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you'd like to hear more, you can access all of our more than 500 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, uh, uh, put your comments on any shows, or just to say hello, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. And a few people have tried to get through and misspelled my name. It's L-O-P-A-T-E. Uh, this is the point in my program where I need to ask you to step up and help support WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. We are asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to consider making a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Call right now to uh, keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Remember, BAI is the only station on New York radio that's completely listener-sponsored. But that means we rely on the support of listeners like you to stay on the air. It's, it's, it's the way that this whole crazy experiment in 100% listener-supported radio works. So if you like the idea that no corporate overlords are telling us how to do this show, why not come on board and help us keep it going? Again, uh, you can become a member uh, with a donation, or you can become a sustaining member, a BAI buddy. And uh, although things may not be fancy here at BAI, they are refreshingly independent. So, so call right now, 212-209-2950, or go to give to WBAI.org online to keep Leonard Lopate at Large coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And from all of us at the station, to everyone who has contributed so far, Thank you so much. Uh, we hope that you'll join us on Monday when Judy Battalion will discuss her new book, The Light of Days, The Untold Story of Women Resistance Fighters in Hitler's Ghettos. Have a great weekend.